instructions for Christian living. So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught, with regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put away falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger brawling and slander, along with every form of malicious. Be kind and compassionate one to another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is the word of the Lord. Well, very good morning. Um, before preaching this morning, I just wanted to take a few moments um, just to recognize uh, the passing of Monica, uh, whose funeral we had on Friday. Um, it was a very moving day. Um, and talking to somebody um, in the congregation uh, after the funeral, he was saying, for me, it feels as though an era has ended. Uh, Monica was one of those people who would always be around, and it seemed odd that she would no longer be around physically uh, here with us. And I just wanted this morning, because she was such a part of this congregation and loved this church so much, uh, just to take a moment to recognize that and to recognize the impact of the passing of someone like Monica. Um, she was somebody who was uh, a great example in terms of prayer and service, 
and faithfulness, um, and we will miss her. Um, and I think it's just important that we don't just sort of carry on to the next thing, um, but just take a moment to remember her and to remember what she was and is uh, to you and to me. So let's pray together. Father, we do want to thank you again for Monica. Thank you for her example of faith and love. Thank you for her honesty and her struggles that she didn't pretend. But thank you too that she loved you, loved this church and loved this congregation. And we just want to thank you for her this morning. Thank you for the privilege that we have had of knowing her, of being alongside her, of learning from her and receiving from her. And Father, we give ourselves afresh to you this morning and pray that our lives might be similarly lives of prayer and service and hospitality and welcome. We ask this morning that you might speak into our hearts and minds. In Jesus' name, amen. It therefore may seem a slightly odd segue to... Uh, speak about the subject that we're going to look at this morning. In the second half of the book of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul starts to lay out to the Ephesians how he wants them to live. The first three chapters are what's called the credenda, what you should believe. He's reminding them about who they are in Christ, about their relationship with Christ, about what Christ has done for them. And then in the second three chapters of the book of Ephesians, he lays out the consequences. If you believe this, then this is how you should live. If you're in Christ, then this is the difference that being in Christ should make. And it's striking that as he moves on from talking about unity and the importance of relationships at the start of what we call chapter 4, in the second half, he then moves on to some of the causes of disunity of the fracture and dislocation of relationships. And in the second half of chapter 4, he zeroes in on one particular character trait. And the character trait is that of anger. Now, the reality is that we live in a very angry world. Our society, our culture, seems to be adept at finding new ways to be angry with each other. New phrases are invented. Road rage, air rage, shop rage. Just this week, Edinburgh has invented a new one. 20 mile an hour speed limit rage. As drivers all over the city desperately battle to keep their feet on the accelerator pedal just light enough at 20 miles an hour without getting out of second gear. There's going to be some pretty broken gearboxes all over the city. But the reality is that if you look at our politics, if you look at people around you, many people walk around like grenades with the pin out. It's just a question of when they explode and why and over what. Apparently, there are over 2,000 incidents each year now of air rage where passengers on an airplane have to be restrained or indeed removed from the aircraft, hopefully when it's landed, um, because they get angry. 10% of lollipop ladies 
are victims of violence. And they're really struggling, uh, councils across the country, to find people to volunteer to man uh, level crossings and uh, road crossings because so many people are subject to violent abuse, both physical and verbal. The reality is that there are volcanoes all around us, and not all of them are dormant like Arthur's seat. Thousands of years ago, Aristotle wrote this. Anyone can be angry. That's easy. To be angry with the right person in the right degree at the right time for the right purpose in the right way, well, that isn't easy. And the fact is that it affects every single one of us. Anger is part of our physiological makeup. We're made to react in certain ways. It's an emotion that tells us to put something right, either with ourselves or somebody else or something else in the world. Anger can be a problem-solving emotion. It gives us strength, energy, and motivation to act. It's part of our flight-or-fight reaction to stress or pressure or threat. Physiologically, adrenaline is released. Our hearts beat faster. We breathe more quickly. We sweat more. It allows us to focus more and react more quickly. But also it can mean that we don't think clearly very well. And it's why we act or react in a way that we might regret later. Anger is normal. It's part of being human. But often we express it wrongly because of all sorts of reasons. And if we're honest, anger can often be expressed wrongly or inappropriately, particularly in a church. Now, anger is part of God's creation. The word occurs 455 times in the Bible. Don't worry, I did look that up. I didn't go through this week and count every one. 375 times when it occurs, it refers to God feeling angry. And there can be good anger. Anger at injustice, anger at greed, anger at selfishness. Anger of itself can be neutral. The words that Paul himself quotes from Psalm 4, in your anger, do not sin. There's a, there's a separation between the two things. It's possible to be angry and not sin. In your anger, do not sin. It's okay to be angry. It just depends what you do with it and why and when you're angry. So let's look at Ephesians chapter 4 and verses 17 through to the end of the chapter. Paul, as I say, is describing, outlining to the Ephesian church what their new life in Christ should look like. He's contrasting it with their old life before they knew Jesus. He's saying, once you were like that, but now you should be like this. If Jesus means anything to you at all, then your life should be different and it should be characterized by these different qualities. As the Spirit of God lives in you, as the Spirit of God enables you to become more Christ-like, you should be being changed. Your, your character should be being transformed. And he's saying to the church in Ephesus, just as he's saying to us this morning, people around you should notice that you're different because of the way that you act and react. And it's fascinating to see that the things he identifies as, as uh, meaning that the Christians in Ephesus and Edinburgh are going to lead distinctively different lives are not particularly spiritual things. It's not how long you pray for. It's not how well you know the Bible. 
It's not how often you come to church. It's not how long you preach a sermon. It's about character traits that the world outside will see. He describes their old life in verses 17 to 19. I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. He's saying before you became a Christian, your thinking was futile. He describes it in verse 18 as ignorance. You were darkened in understanding. He says in verse 18, you were alienated, separated from the life of God. He describes it then in verses 18 and 19 as being characterized by hard and insensitive hearts. He says, before you came to know Jesus, your, your hearts were hardened and insensitive. The Greek word there for hard is the word porosis, and it means apparently a kind of marble or a callus that forms after a bone is broken. And once the healing is complete, the callus itself is actually harder than the bone. And what Paul is saying is before you became a Christian, that's what your hearts were like. They were hardened. They were insensitive. Insensitive to who God is. Insensitive to what people are really like. Insensitive to what you were really like. Yes, you went through life and you bumped off people, but you were completely insensitive. They just bounced off you. They said things to you and you said things to them and it didn't affect you. Because your heart was hardened, it was calloused, even harder than bone. What he seems to be describing is a petrified, hardened heart. A sort of intellectual thickness. I think I remember that phrase from my school reports. An intellectual thickness. Verse 19, he describes it as leading to every kind of impurity and being full of greed a depraved desire for a continual experience of even grosser things. That's what he's describing in verse 19. And he's saying that's what you were like before you came to know Christ. Your, your, your heart wanted more and more bizarre and unhelpful things. Contrast that, he says, with the life that you have now been called to. Verse 20 onwards. That, however, is not the way of life you learned. And he spells out for them what it means to live out the new life. He says, remember the teaching about Jesus. Remember the faith you put in Jesus. And remember the power you received from Jesus. And he uses his analogy that he uses several times elsewhere in other letters, verses 22 to 24. He says, put off the old self and put on the new self. In Colossians, he, he talks about clothing ourselves with kindness and uh, all those other qualities. And there's that contrast all the time between putting off the old self and putting on the new. And he describes it like, like a set of clothes. This evening, in, in the, the waters of affirmation and baptism, five people will give testimony this evening at our 7 o'clock service to their old selves having put, being put off and their new selves having been put on. And we'll symbolize that as we, as we take them down into the water and we use that, that imagery of them being buried with Christ in baptism. We will raise them to new life 
And as they come out, it used to be in, on Easter Day, you were given a new set of clothes after your baptism. You were given a Christian name, and you were given, it wasn't just somebody waiting with a towel, they were waiting with a whole set of new clothes for you to put on, because it comes from Paul's imagery here of putting on the new self. You put on Christ as you came out of the waters of baptism. And that's what Paul is saying here. Put off the old self, put on the new self. Verse 24, you and I were created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. You and I becoming more like Jesus. You and I becoming more like Christ. Day by day, week by week, month by month, you and I should be becoming more like Jesus. The image of Christ should be being formed more fully in each of us day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year. And verses 25 to 32, it's striking as to what he focuses in on, as to what is the distinctive markers of Christ followers from people who aren't Christians. And as I say, it's not the things that we might expect. It's not evangelism, it's not prayer, it's not spirituality, it's not Bible knowledge, it's not spiritual experience, it's not spiritual gifts, it's their character and behavior. So verse 25, he says, don't lie to each other. Each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor for we're all members of one body. And then he zeroes in on anger. And he says, I want you to be different. I want you to be distinctive from this culture that you live in, whether it be Ephesus or Edinburgh. And I want you to be different by the way in which you respond to anger. He says, deal with it. Don't let it fester. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. I use this story. I'm sure I've used it before, but on our marriage preparation course, uh, when we're talking about conflict resolution with couples who are preparing to get married, I use this, this true story that happened to us. Uh, we'd been married for about six months, um, and I went out to a meeting. It was a church meeting. Um, Kathy said, what time will you be back? And I said, probably about 10 o'clock. And it was a church meeting, and church meetings go on. And it went on, and it went on, and on, and on. And I got home at half 11. And I came home at half 11, having said that I was going to be home at 10. As I say, we were only married for six months at that point. We were naive and we were innocent. Um, and I remember creeping upstairs very quietly, very generously, very sensitively, and, and opening the bedroom door, and, and very kindly and very gently and very sensitively, not turning the bedroom light on. And beginning to get undressed very, very quietly. And then being stopped in my tracks as this voice came out of the darkness. You don't think you're sleeping in here, do you? <laughs> and I remember very kindly and very gently and very sensitively picking up the clothes that I'd taken off. And tiptoeing out of the bedroom and creeping down the stairs and getting the sofa bed out and thinking, well, it's okay, we can deal with it in the morning. And just dropping off to sleep on the sofa bed in the lounge, being absolutely outraged as the landing light was thrown on, and Kathy came down the stairs, boom, 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 threw the lounge light on, 
and just stood over me and said, I want a row and I want it now. <laughs> and she was quite right because she wasn't letting the sun go down on her anger. And I was allowed to sleep in the bedroom that particular night. The theologian Buchner has observed this. Of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll your tongue over the prospect of bitter confrontations to come, to savour to the last toothsome morsel both the pain you are given and the pain you are giving back. In many ways, it a, is it a feast fit for a king? The chief drawback is that what you are woofing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. Anger may be right. Anger may be justified even. But anger is dangerous because it's so powerful. Anger can lead to broken relationships, broken friendships, broken marriages. Anger can surface disproportionately and inappropriately. If I'm honest, as I've been a member of church, churches now for about 40 years, there is a particular phenomenon in church life where anger surfaces through what's called passive aggression, where people don't actually tell you what they're angry about. They just hint at something else. There's a side comment. Oh, well, you would think that, wouldn't you? That's passive aggression. Maybe anger surfaces in church because of a situation at work. Maybe anger surfaces in church because of a situation in a relationship. And people will vent and speak, maybe sometimes in a church context, in a way that they feel that they can't in a work context or in a family situation. And they'll sound off in church about the smallest thing, the choice of a hymn, a chair being out of place, something being just not quite right or the way they want it. It's not actually the thing that they're cross about at the time that they're actually angry about. It's displaced anger. It's transferred anger, often expressed through passive aggression. Anger is there, but just under the surface. It comes out in other ways. A look, a sulk, creating confusion, eroding trust, but never dealing with the real issues. It's fine to disagree, but let's do so passionately and loudly and strongly. But passive aggression is very destructive in a marriage, never mind in a church. You see the link that Paul makes between verses 29 and 30. Don't let any unwholesome talk comes out of your, come out of your mouths, but only what's helpful for building others up, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Grieving the Holy Spirit of God isn't about just quenching prophecy or not allowing gifts of the Spirit complete freedom in a church. Grieving the Spirit of God is about the speech that comes out of our mouths to each other and about each other. That's what grieves the Spirit of God. No slander, no bitterness, no rage, no anger, no brawling. I've never seen that in church. Um, I need, yeah. um, 
along with every form of that. I, I pointed at James because he told us a story last Sunday about him hitting his brother and his brother hitting him. Uh, we weren't condoning physical violence, um, but um, don't get close to the, the Green brothers. Um, they're, they're, they're mean. Um, but Paul is very practical. How do we deal with anger? He says, get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, and slander. And the contrast is verse 32. Be kind and compassionate to each other, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Acknowledge your anger. Identify its source. Own it. Ask for help, advice, prayer, through prayer ministry perhaps, or even counselling. Seek resolution, seek reconciliation if possible, it might not be possible. Communicate directly and clearly but lovingly. And recognize that anger affects all of us to a greater or lesser degree. But don't let the sun go down on your anger. Put off the old self and put on the new self. Forgive even as you are forgiven. Be kind and compassionate, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you.